0: This is the One Million Lives Podcast by Lairdall. Listen to healthcare professionals, healthcare educators, and survivors share their best practices and what they've learned from these experiences. At Lairdall, it's our goal to help save one million more lives every year by 2030, one life at a time.
1: A hearty welcome to all our listeners. My name is Michael Sorter. I'm the Chief Learning Officer at Ladder Medical and your host at the One Million Lives Podcast. Today's episode is a continuation of a talk I had with Professor and Carter on assessment in healthcare education. I strongly suggest you listen to part one of this talk before going into this one. In part one, we discussed how healthcare education is different from many other studies in higher education in that assessment needs to be both helping us understand if the candidate is qualified to work as a healthcare professional, but then there's this second part to that, which is related to if you can be trusted to do the work that society has qualified you to do. It is this notion of trust and how we might go about assessing that we will be exploring in this episode. Towards the end of part one, Oller said that we must ensure that there are qualities proven by science that assessors would need to look for when assessing a candidate of medicine or nursing during their clinical placement. And he suggested that some of these are reliability, integrity, capability, humility, and agency. I will get out of the way to let you dive right back into this very interesting discussion. And he makes all the sense in the world, I mean, from my education background, what, what you're saying, uh, these are in a way, they, they're pr- probably also generic in a way for everyone doing a profession uh, where you work with people. Of course, the way you apply them is probably unique to your profession, and, and but, but uh, I can easily relate to them in other domains. But let's now sort of try to get even more granular in the sense that I'm a medical school or a nursing school, and I'm I'm really curious as to, or actually I may have decided to, wanting to implement EPA as the way to assess students while they are in their clinical placements. Are there any particular, sort of a, on a generic level, steps a school would typically go through? I, I'm sure you've witnessed a few. So what would that look like from an implementation point of view for a school who wanted to implement EPAs?
2: I would say the, uh, when you are uh, as a group or a school or a specialty associations that very often happens to, sometimes on a national level, I think this the, the, this approach sounds appealing. Now we need to start doing it. Uh, of course, the first thing is, would is identify what are those APAs. And we have an, and it's, it's, it sounds like an easy question. But it's actually pretty difficult. But if you think of it, what is the activity that you would trust to do for a learner uh, tomorrow? And you can just imagine that if you work in surgery, it would be, it might be different than would you work in internal medicine or, or in nursing. Those units of practice, you don't want Those units of practice to be defined as very small, which is actually in in early phases of implementation, people start coming up with sometimes over 100 EPAs. And if you would define all those EPAs and take them seriously and say, well, each of these EPAs need to be those components that lead to that important summative decisions from now you're ready to do this by yourself. And you can just imagine if you have that for 100 APAs, it will not work in a program. So there's practical limitations to the size or the number of APAs, which are related, of course. If you have more APAs, the sizes are smaller, but if you have fewer EPAs, the sizes are larger. So in surgery, you could say, well, we can define an EPA related to the pathology. So you are ready to do this type of surgery for patients with this type of medical condition. In pediatrics, it might be that you would say, well, our decision for you to do something tomorrow morning might be running the outpatient clinic for common pediatric conditions. And then you will have patients coming to your clinic that have not been labeled yet. So you cannot use for that activity, you cannot use diseases as an entity. Whereas in some uh, surgery, you could say, well, there's a patient scheduled for surgery tomorrow morning with, uh, with everything known, and the surgery must just be performed. Uh so here's where a disease might be a unit for for an EPA. So it is and I won't expand because there's more, uh there's more ways to do that. You have to really carefully think of what are the EPAs. And we are seeing uh different research approaches to uh to do that and consensus approaches uh among people to come up with the, the best EPAs. Then you have those EPAs. Then you, when you start implementing them, you need to have a way to evaluate whether persons are ready to be doing that by themselves. So you need an assessment approach. Uh, and a, you need an approach that aligns with the idea of entrustment. And the idea of entrustment is usually framed in the amount of supervision a person receives so you can have close supervision you have no supervision you have something in between here's where specialties also differ so you could say in in surgery uh, during at least intra uh, in the in the or you could see there's different shades of help that i can provide to someone who starts becoming a surgeon but in internal medicine it could be very different um, you are not always close supervision as b- being present In during the activity is something that uh, even a first-year resident in internal medicine seldom actually happens because they are doing working with patients just by themselves and they are debriefing with her. Uh, So the skill that you would be using to qualify what is the level of supervision, what does that look like, might be different for different programs. So you have to have that framework too. Then you start working with educators who have been trained many years in their own practice and have been working with very different approaches to assessment. So you need to inform them well and they need time to understand what it really means to be entrusting a learner. We say in, in working with EPAs, you we make a distinction between ad hoc decisions and summative decisions. The summative decisions are those I would say qualifications that almost look like a license to practice without supervision. The ad hoc decisions are the things that happen every day, that if you are uh, working with a new student and you are on a clinical workspace and you would say, well, maybe now I've seen you working yesterday, uh, today I can leave the room because I think you will probably do well, but uh, page me as soon as you need my help or or let me debrief with you right after your your interaction with the patient to evaluate how you were doing so leaving the room is an ad hoc entrustment decision because you're trusting that the patient is it is safe enough to have the patient just be interacting with you uh, with a learner that are ad hoc decisions so you need a series of those ad hoc decisions but the, the thinking of clinical educators is very ingrained with our traditional way of making a score on a 10-point scale or a five-point scale or whatever. So that is so ingrained in their way of assessment. So to have them think of responsibilities and entrustment is, yeah, I would say a shift in thinking. And that is not always easy. So you might want to train people to do that.
1: And, and it's very novel, I think, but also speaks to what we talked about before, about addressing patient safety uh, and so on. So I, I I really like what you're saying. Uh, but I can sense as you're talking, uh, I'm sort of falling back into a, um, in my head at least, uh, a, a sort of, okay, so what is then the difference between um, skills and and, trustable activities, and you somewhat touched on it because you said it's not really viable or you can't have 100 EPAs. I remember reading in one of your recent papers from 2022, uh, and the paper is called, for those who want to search it up, Entrustable Professional Activities versus Competencies and Skills, Exploring Why Different Concepts are Often So Conflated. I'll put a link to it below here. Um, but you seek to clear up some misunderstandings regarding the use of EPAs versus the use of more established notions like competencies and skills. I I, I have struggled a bit with this distinction for myself, uh, but you had a very interesting statement there. You said, clearly, one cannot possess EPAs nor become qualified for competencies, rather possessing competencies and being qualified for EPAs is the goal of medical training. Could you unpack that a little bit further?
2: Uh, yes, it's good to, to do that uh, because there's it happens very often. Many people actually struggle with that distinction. But if you think of EPAs of something that is on the, the work list in the hallway of uh, a clinical department that say, well, he's, we have so many patients, this must happen today, uh, somebody must do it you could see that all, all those activities are really units of practice that are not owned by an individual I mean they they, they must be done and then you um, if you would be uh, like the head of the head of the uh, the board of the apartment department you would say well or or the one who schedules actually uh, individuals for service would say well this person uh, will uh, will have this person do that and so the activity is not something that's inside the person. Now competencies definitely only are inside individuals. Now why are they conflated? And that is probably because it's not easy to even formulate what a competency is. People start, if you ask them what what are what are competency uh, frameworks and what are the competencies that that people need to possess, then if you look at it, people, writers, become lazy in their the way they write because they would say Well, of course, history-taking. History-taking, that competency they need to acquire. And now, wait a minute, history-taking, is that a competency or is that an activity? It actually is an activity, that's clear. But it's a competency, but a competency is probably the ability to do so. Or basically, I would ask a deeper question. So what competencies do you you need to possess to do a good history-taking? what are those competencies and then you come to things like yeah of course i can think of that that's like uh you need the ability to have professional behavior or you need clinical reasoning skills or you need to interact with with a patient well you you need to organize things well to have things in your mind you need to probably uh know how to talk with a patient and work on your laptop uh, or or your your uh electronic health record, because you're probably combining writing and talking at the same time, all those things that are skills that you need to do while you're taking history. Now, people just say, well, history taking, we call that a skill. So basically, linguistically, confusion arises. And you would actually have to say, if you call that a competence, it is rather the ability to do so. But it is a very broad ability that can be broken down into different skills and 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 competencies that you need to do to be able to do that history. So I understand why that happens. Now, the reason why if you start conflating that and say, well, EPAs, we call that just big competencies, there is a risk in that. And because you start losing the idea of entrustment decisions, and that's what I sometimes see happening in, and that was the article that you're referring to, is a little bit critical uh, about those programs that say we make entrustment decisions for EPAs, but basically only say we would qualify you, uh, but we're not actually making that decision. And here, it's, it's not much different than making an evaluation of somebody's skill. You say you have the skills, we're not going to make that step that you tomorrow, you can actually, you're allowed to do. Uh, That Without supervision, because we're not backing down on supervision or we're not giving you more autonomy. So by doing that, and then the conflation increases because it becomes harder to say when you evaluate a person, is it just your skills that we're evaluating? Or are we really making decisions about an activity that you're allowed to do?
1: And I think that makes it so much clearer to me. I thank you for that uh, distinction inside the person or the activity you do. I mean, that's that's helpful. I think most people can relate to that. I guess that brings a question to me and sort of, as you see it, uh, working a lot with this, what are the limitations or potential pitfalls in the EPA approach that people need to be at least aware of if they want to go down this road?
2: If you want to use the full potential of working with EPAs in a program, summative decisions of entrustment and increased autonomy over time must be operationalized in some way. If you are in a program or a, even like a state or a country that had regulations that prohibit learners to work unsupervised or even with decreased supervision, there are regulations sometimes that would require, as long as a learner is even in postgraduate training, that there must be a supervisor in the room even. In surgery it happens, in, in other domains. Uh, I have one of my PhD students was a gastroenterologist training learners with colonoscopies. And he said, I have many senior learners who I really completely would trust to do this by themselves. But I'm not allowed to leave the room because of the regulations. And if a patient, it was, something would happen and, and the patient would say, was this learner alone uh, or were you, were you there? Then they would not meet the regulation and regulatory things with danger uh, for, for litigations or whatever. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, and I'm coming back to the, the thing that I said in the early in the interview, realize that if a person is licensed or, or certified to do, do those colonoscopies, the next day or right after training, there's no supervisor, not even like in the vicinity to help if you need help. Then for like superficially, a patient might think, well, this was not a learner in training, uh, so I would have to trust it. Uh, but it is a like a false distinction also for a patient to think, this is a trainee, so I cannot trust them. And that has been the narrative in many circumstances. And it's danger, it's a dangerous narrative, actually. It prohibits programs to use the full potential of working with EPAs. So that's one of the pitfalls.
0: You're listening to One Million Lives, a Lairdall podcast.
1: I've been to the hospital and... and- person came along with a tag on a chest saying student or um, doctor in training or whatever and, and I think in a way we are as patients then tend to be more skeptical why am I not getting the real deal or the best doctor in the in ward or whatever so I, I can relate to that very easily
2: yeah so that's one, one pitfall uh, there are other uh, other pitfalls too and and, and I would say uh, one of the things we touched a little bit upon if you are working with EPAs, Uh, there's a tendency of programs to increase the numbers of EPAs. And if you have a very large number, um, your program is going to be difficult. If you want to install that and you want to say, well, everybody uh, needs to meet the, uh, the, the requirements for entrustment and we have to document that all, then documentation and observation may become a burden. And definitely... Learners need to be observed. Some decades ago, there was hardly any serious observation for learners. So that has to increase. And there's no way around that. If you work with EPAs or not with EPAs, that is a, some people call that a burden. If you really think about that, it is usually less burdensome than people actually think Think they are. I mean, they think oh, I'm a physician and I have a trainee, but I don't want to be distracted by my trainee. Uh, they can observe me and they will probably be. But if you're a serious educator, you have to really work with that trainee and, and observe them and teach them, provide them feedback. Uh, we do have uh, technology coming up actually to, um, to make that more easy. And uh, there's some good examples of that too. So the burden of uh, assessment is sometimes what people also feel. As, as a drawback, and I would say it's not so much of EPAs, but it's rather of a workplace-based assessment in general. If you use EPAs or not use EPAs,
1: can I take along on that? Because when I came to visit you uh, in the Netherlands, uh, we we met at a very famous simulation center, the Met Center, where I believe you are part of the supervisory board, and you brought up the potential of technology to be of help in doing EPAs? And and I would sort of wanted, and maybe I'm putting you a little bit on the spot here, but how do you see the role of technology? And maybe we can even expand into, is there a role potentially for simulation, healthcare simulation in this domain?
2: Yeah, let me make uh, a distinction of two types of technology. Uh, the one type of technology I just uh, referred to in the previous question is the technology that uh, is coming up using Smartphones on and mobile devices during workplace based assessment. And there's examples now that uh, related to EPAs, those evaluations can be made very quickly. Uh, just in a matter of one or two minutes, actually, you can do that. When you have that well organized in with the right software, you could do it on the hallway. You do in the elevator. You could do it uh, very briefly uh, during clinical training. That's one type of technology, and I think it's going to be important too. The other type of technology is actually preparing learners for activities in, in a simulated way. Now, simulation has, I would say, since uh, the 1980s, become very important in medical programs. And I think it is important. You want to minimize the, the harm to patients by preparing students well before they start doing work with patients. Now, that preparation can be seen as something that is completely outside the workplace. Uh, just as a preparation in courses and skills training, sometimes I see increasingly merges of that in situ simulation uh, examples you, you can see where standardized situations are there where students have the benefit of being able to practice over and over again without having uh, harming patients or even uh, like burning patients before they are ready to do that. So that technology is important and is increasingly coming up. Also, I would say coming, moving closer to workplace-based assessment. There's one warning that I would like to give if you work with EPAs that I believe that for almost all EPAs, just standardized assessment in a simulation environment would not suffice to certify or qualify a learner for working unsupervised if you have not done that also in true patient care and being observed, doing that with real patients, just because of the variability of all the components that are in a live patient care situation. But you can move and Uh, to to quote what I think it's important for you to save lives by preparing students well with simulation. So I think it's very important. That's one of the reasons why I joined the uh, supervisory board of a large simulation center in the Netherlands, because I think it is helpful. And that center is now, uh, actually this year, the first time they are focusing their simulation on EPAs. And that is actually even more dominant for them in in nursing, postgraduate nursing in the Netherlands is moving to completely EPA-based programs and very flexible EPAs that can be used for different specialties in nursing. And they're also being trained in simulation centers. So they are adapting their training to comply with the the new framework of of working with EPAs.
1: Uh, and I think that's actually uh, a brilliant topic for another talk, uh, how that would pan out. And once you have some experience under your belt, I want to learn more. I really want to thank you so much for joining this discussion, Professor Tenkata. I hope our listeners found some golden nuggets in our discussion. But if anyone wanted to read more and uh, what you have written and follow you, uh, where would they go to find some of your publications?
2: If they're truly interested in my personal publications, of course, you can always uh, go to PubMed and put in the word and trustable. Um, as you may know, uh, the word does not exist in dictionaries. So it's pretty unique.
1: You should trademark it. Uh,
2: yes. I, uh, it, it, so it, it makes it easy to find that. If you look for personal publications, which also include other publications that are only on EPAs, uh, I would suggest to go to my uh, Google Scholar uh, website in google and look at the overview of our publications and
1: citations i will certainly make sure to include a few of them uh below the the episode when we publish it thank you again so much enlightening i've learned a lot i hope the same goes for our listeners and thanks for now
2: was my pleasure thank you
0: you have been listening to a one million lives podcast by Lairdall. You can find all our podcasts and access any bonus material on Lairdahl.com slash podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed are those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the institution they are affiliated with or of Lairdall Medical. If you have any suggestions for guests or topics we should cover, please send us a message on lairdalcom slash podcast. We look forward to hearing from you.
2: Until the next time. Goodbye from the Lairdall podcast team.